Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, we delve into the intricate relationship between psychedelics and capitalism. During the first wave of psychedelics in the 1960s, mind-altering substances played a significant role in challenging capitalist values and systems. However, in our current landscape, we're witnessing a different rollout of psychedelics, one that is predominantly medicalized and intertwined with traditional capitalist models. This raises an important question. Does this convergence of psychedelics and Western capitalism feel incongruous? And if so, what can be done about it? Today, we're joined by Jenny Stefanati, founder and steward of Denizen, a media platform and co-learning community dedicated to examining systemic change. Together, we'll examine some models where for-profit enterprises navigate ethical considerations associated with psychedelic use, such as with companies like Journey Colab. We'll explore whether psychedelics are by their very nature designed to be tools for social justice and instruments for political activism. And if they have a role in movements for equity and liberation, is that role undermined by the predominant mode of distribution? Join us as we navigate the intricate terrain where psychedelics and capitalism intersect and explore the potential dangers and opportunities that arise from this convergence. Quick context on my background that I think is relevant in articulating what Denizen is. It's a it's an eclectic background, but it includes a couple of really key perspectives that I, I bring to the work. One was a lot of years working in the technology industry in strategy, particularly at Google, right after the IPO. So I was at Google from 2004 to 2008, then went back again in 2010, and this is really when there was so much enthusiasm about the role that technology and the internet could play in improving the world, right? And, and totally drank the Kool-Aid, right? And from there, I went to the Kennedy School at Harvard and got my master's degree in economics and international development, where the dominant narrative was make economies grow to improve the human condition. This is how we brought people out of poverty all around the world. Right. And so I was kind of like very much, I wouldn't say indoctrinated, but in a sense, like really lived these two really prominent narratives about where social change and human progress comes from technological progress and economic growth. Right. And then from there, for what it's worth, then I went on to the D school and was a fellow at the design school at Stanford. And there, you know, really learned to think in a very human centered, iterative, experimental way. So those are the, the, the key frames that I'm bringing into the conversation that I'm hosting with Denizen, which in, in many ways is really picking up where Harvard left off, uh, really asking these more fundamental questions about what are our objectives with human society, institutions and culture and everything that we do? And, and you know, what are the institutional and cultural contexts that achieve those objectives? Because it, I think it's very clear and everybody, everybody knows this, that there's something deeply wrong with the current status quo. There's something deeply wrong with the story about technology saving the world. And there's something very wrong about the st story of economic growth saving the world. Um, and when we're going to get into that. So the Denison conversation is really interrogating, okay, what does that future that actually achieves our objectives as humanity, um, which is to live in a way that is in harmony with life or to, you know, many in the community would argue, well, even that, that line of articulation is flawed because it looks at us as separate from life but see us in harmony with life, right? What are the institutional and cultural contexts that actually yield those outcomes? 
there's a lot of conversation, of course, around regenerative futures, economy, agriculture, et cetera. But this expands beyond regeneration to, to care and justice. Uh, you know, and in addition to saying, okay, what does that look like? There's also the question of how do we evolve from the current state to that? And so a lot of what we look at in the conversation is a lot of the marginal reforms that are underway today. And we'll talk about some of those in this conversation. So the conversation for Dennis and the inquiry is falls under six pillars. It's economics, politics, technology, culture, consciousness, and justice. Much of that is, uh, you know, also overlaps with the conversation that you host with Esalen. That's why I've been to Esalen so much. Um, and the one of the main things we do is we produce a podcast. There's an episode every week that tries to take a topic under one or more of those thematic areas and just make sense of it. So things like universal basic income, stakeholder capitalism, long-term capitalism, what's happening in psychedelics, which we'll talk about today, um, to uh, you know looking at technology insofar as it is influencing the culture and society that we care about and also the ways that it can support a transition to something else. Um, so that's the quick snapshot on what Denizen is. And alongside the media piece, there's just a really remarkable community of people who are working at the forefront of the conversation that we're hosting. Well, see, that was wonderful. I, I knew, Jenny, that you would be able to do that so much better than I could. I, I really appreciate your rigor. And yeah, you're a really brilliant person. And I'm, I'm so happy that we've been able to arrange for this conversation to happen today. I'm excited. So Jenny, I brought you on to talk about psychedelics and capitalism. It seems like you're the perfect person to to speak about this in depth and to bring up the first wave of psychedelics in, in the West during the 1960s, where we see psychedelics play this major role in challenging capitalist values and systems. So now, fast forward to today, they seem to be rolling out in a legitimized sort of medicalized model, which of course is buttressed by this traditional capitalist system. My question for you is, does the enmeshment of psychedelics and capitalism feel in any way incongruous to you? So the answer to that is a definitive yes. Uh, but before we double click on that, and that'll be a lot of the conversation today, I do think it's really important to understand how we got from psychedelics and how that played a role in the countercultural movement of the 60s to where we are today. So what happened, right? The original synthesis of LSD, right, happened in the early 20th century in the 1940s. There started to be, there was a recognition of the potential clinical use of it. And there were, was a proliferation of research in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s looking at the clinical violence. So the, the origins of psychedelics are actually in clinical use. And then it became more known and used recreationally. And it was that proliferation that led to the threat of the dominant power structures, which led to the illegal, like led to those substances becoming illegal, right? And so when Rick Doblin founded MAPS in 1989, 1986, Rick Doblin founded MAPS in 1986, his whole thesis was that it was through a path of clinical trials of building up an evidence base that was irrefutable in the value of these substances, particularly for treating mental conditions that were resistant to other methods of treatment that you could get the political acceptance, political feasibility and cultural acceptance for these substances to be used again. So it's actually a, a really brilliant multi-decade strategy that has brought us from that genesis of the 60s 
to, to where we are today. Now, the challenge of that is that it was a, there was a double-edged sword with that strategy because now it is, rolled, to your point, rolling out in a, you know, a healthcare system that is very broken precisely because of the incentives and psychedelics in its ability to achieve the goals of health and well-being that it actually exists for. Right. So there is this fundamental tension between the incentives of the market and investors and the the things that we want to achieve with psychedelics, ultimately. Right. Or certainly optimizing for one versus the other. Right. Like you can have one objective function. Which one is it? Is it the you know return and accumulation of capital or is it the, you know, the overall well-being objectives that we can achieve with psychedelics? Those are fundamentally at odds. And so a lot of the space also we'll talk about today of like, you know, business for good. It doesn't really reconcile those two objective functions and really answer the question, well, which one's the objective function and which one is the constraint? Um you know, and I would also say there's a really great quote I was reading about, I was reading Santac by Tyson Yunkaporta. You might be familiar with that. Uh, and there's a really great quote in it that says, the most remarkable thing about Western civilization is its ability to absorb any object or idea, alter it, sanitize it, rebrand it, and market it. Even ideas that are a threat can be co-opted and put to work. Ideas can be re-engineered to serve the interests of the powerful. It's not a conspiracy. It's just power doing what power does. And so that's an important and valuable orientation to hold now as we are on this precipice of the psychedelic revolution. Like, will it achieve the systemic and cultural change that we envision it could, or will it get co-opted? And I think, you know, when I was at, in 2019, I was at Esalen for Psychedelic Integration, and for me, I could see very clearly the parallels from the moments when I was at Google in the early days where there was so much insight and enthusiasm about what was possible and naivete about the downsides and ignorance in the ways in which market incentives could lead to unintended systemic consequences, right? And so I think that is the, that is the question to hold now. Like, how can the psychedelic industry be less ignorant than the tech industry was 15 years ago when it was, or 20 years ago, when it was in a very similar point in its evolution. Recently, I was reading a, an issue of Double Blind. Aya Biosciences is developing what they refer to as a sublingual strip that dissolves under the tongue in three seconds in order to avoid the nausea that commonly is associated with taking ayahuasca. Now, Cybin Corporation is synthesizing a sublingual strip of psilocybin which could be administered to clinical trial subjects who have major depressive disorder. Some people are expressing concern about the for-profit drug development of psychedelics, right? Because they're arguing that it could lead to what essentially could be a, a monopolization of psychedelic medicines by just a few companies who set these prices. Then they create barriers to access for so many people who need healing. In your opinion of the surveying the scene at this point, do you think this is a, an actual pressing danger? I mean, no question. Right. I mean, what have we seen with pharma and IP? Right. It's that like once you have a patent on a drug, you can sell that drug for an enormous margin, which then limits its accessibility for people who need it. Right. And so the question is, you also have to acknowledge the fact that there is a significant amount of capital. I mean, this is this is why we have IP. There is a significant amount of capital that needs to get deployed or even just like, not just uh, financial capital, but human capital to 
experiment with these drugs to bring them to market. And that capital will not get deployed unless there is a way for that capital to get returned. So the question is then, how do you balance those two competing objectives, right? And so there are ways in which you can get creative about what that looks like. I mean, I think, and this comes to like what, you know, like how IP is treated, right? So typically it's treated as you have a patent for X amount of years. Maybe it looks like, you know, you have a patent until you get X return on the capital. And I think capped returns is a, a really important mechanism that you know acknowledges the need for for-profit and market-oriented solutions to bring an adequate amount of capital to do the things that we do, while also limiting the extractive incentive that is fundamentally flawed with these models. But you know, again, if you have companies that are fundamentally trying to do something other than maximize return to shareholders and are governed in ways that actually like put that into practice and so that it's not just lip service and this is what the conversation will look like today, then they can pursue, you know, IP regimes that better balance those tensions. So let's bring up the Journey Collab example, because you recently spoke at South by Southwest on your topic of psychedelics and the next economy. It looked like a fascinating conversation, and, and one of your co-speakers was part of Journey Collab. So for those who don't know, Journey Collab is this company that was founded actually by Sam Altman. He's the CEO of OpenAI, the company that's kind of upending the world through all the artificial intelligence products, including ChatGPT. So clearly, Journey Collab, to my mind at least, it's working diligently to bring the benefits of psychedelics to mainstream society. In your opinion, do you find ideological conflict at all between kind of the capitalist values that some may say characterize, underwrite the tech industry up against the transformative potential of psychedelics? 100% no question. Like 100% no, this is, a, this, is the, this is a question you asked earlier, like is capitalism incongruous with the you know, objectives and potential of psychedelics? A hundred percent, no question, right? Because anytime you have a for-profit model, there is fundamentally a significant pressure to maximize the value of the company, which means that the company needs to grow, right? And maximize return to shareholders, which means that the value created gets extracted from the firm and return to shareholders. So that extraction is what also leads to accumulation of power and accumulation of cap accumulation of capital and accumulation of power and then cycles, right? This is why companies co-opt government, right? I mean, this is like a systemic kind of pattern that you see with capitalism, which is why you have widening inequality, right? It's just there are these reinforcing feedback loops that are built into the system, right? So what journey collab, I mean, and by the way, like Open AI is a really interesting example in the AI space that is doing things that are progressive in terms of how it's governed. I mean, Open AI initially was founded as a nonprofit. They made assumptions about what they needed to do in terms of investment in capital and human capital. And then they realized that now actually we need a very significant amount of capital to invest in computing to realize our objectives. And they didn't have access to that kind of capital with a nonprofit model. So they created a hybrid nonprofit for-profit model where they brought significant investment in, but that investment has capped returns. You know, there's a limited partnership, there's an LLC, and then there's the nonprofit. 
And so they, I don't want to get into the details because we should talk about other things, but they, they are doing innovative things that are addressing the incentive issue fundamentally. And Journey Collab is also, I think, doing some of the most progressive and important things in the psychedelic space to be less extractive than the dominant capitalist models would lend themselves to be. Um, so what they've done, right, is that they've created a trust. Uh, and, I, and I think to their credit, just their entire process has been very, uh, very grounded in consultation with law, many individuals and entities within the space. It's a very stakeholder-driven process as they thought about what they're doing as a company. And so what I would call Journey Collab is a, is a real instantiation of what I would call stakeholder capitalism. So to just to zoom out for a second and just give some broader market dynamics, and this is a lot of what we were talking about in the panel at South by Southwest. 2019, I think, was a real watershed moment for stakeholder capitalism, meaning this transition from the purpose of the firm, as Milton Friedman told us in the Friedman Doctrine, is to maximize return for shareholders. And two, the purpose of the firm is to provide benefits for society and take into account the interest of multiple stakeholders. Right. So 2019 Business Roundtable, the largest business association in the United States, has all the, all the major brands and corporations that you've heard of, like redefined the purpose of the firm to be that. World Economic Forum redefined the purposes of the firm to be around social benefit and stakeholder models. So these are like really significant organizations in capitalism, redefining what the firm is about. And so what does that mean? That means that you're taking into account the interests of other stakeholders. Now, I wrote a blog post at that time talking about, okay, well, how do you actually instantiate this in how a company is governed versus just paying lip service to it? So, I mean, I would argue BRC put that out because Elizabeth Warren was threatening real legislation that would force governance changes and they wanted to kind of get ahead of that and ease some of the political pressure, but maybe that's not the case. And so... What I wrote about in my blog post was I cautioned against a model of stakeholder capitalism that just made more stakeholders owners, because that is just a, a more inclusive, more equitable version of something that still has the fundamental flaws of capitalism. And so Journey Collab represents that. And again, it's very progressive in the space because it's actually instantiating real decision-making power and equitable outcomes. So what they did was they established a journey reciprocity trust. It's an irrevocable trust. 10% of the company's founding equity goes into it. And it's designed to share the value generated by the companies to success with not just indigenous communities, which is of course so important, but also other stakeholders in the psychedelic sector, including groups that work on ensuring equitable access to your point about IP with the pharma model, those working on the conservation of naturally incurring psychedelics. So that's what the trust is designed to do. It, it shares in the financial, the wealth creation of the company with a wider set of constituents. That trust will have a seat on the board. Right, which means that it actually influences the decision making of the company. It actually has power, and then there's like you know more complexities in terms of like okay, well there's a trust stewardship committee, and that's you know that's a group of different people, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, those details we don't need to talk about here, but they did a very you know they, they they engaged in a very detailed process to get there. They took into account the UN principles of free, fire, informed consent. They took into account the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. They took into account the UN Nagoya principles to, to really have a 
you know, a very inclusive model of thinking about how they were building their company. Um, you know, and so I applaud them for that. And I definitely think that that is a gold standard in the space right now, but it still, it just says like, well, we're still, we still want to grow and we still want to make money. We just want to share it with other people. Right. And so you still have what I would deem these fundamental flaws of capitalism baked into the incentives of the company. Just as a point of clarification, what is Journey Collab bringing into the world? What are they bringing to market? How, how do they make money? Uh, so what they're doing is they're doing a synthetic mescaline treatment currently for it's it's intended to support addiction is currently for alcohol. That's where that's like where their research is focused. And so actually one of the things that's really critical about what they're doing is they they're committed to only using synthetic mescaline and not the naturally occurring mescaline, which, you know, may present issues with viability of traditional practices. There's also, you know, they also signed a declaration around just IP because there is a risk that, you know, someone could have a patent on synthetic mescaline and then they could look at that as bridging into uses of natural mescaline. And so, you know, they have signed public declarations that, you know, are intended to be binding about, you know, more responsible use of patents should they be granted. Speaking of patents, I was wondering if during your panel at South by Southwest, Compass Pathways came up. The reason I think of Compass is because they have attempted to patent a form of psilocybin and have gotten blowback from, I think, the psychedelic communities for doing so. I mean, again, this is the, the IP point that we can, we didn't talk specifically about Compass, but this is, again, the IP point that we were getting to earlier, which is just the fact that, um, you know, there's fundamental tension between, between the incentive to grow and capture as much of the market as you can and, you know, being equitable and sharing the benefits. I mean, like, you know, Charles Eisenstein talks about this in his work, like, there's this question of what is the effort that I put in that then justifies the return that I receive, right? And when it comes to psychedelics, there are these you know centuries long indigenous traditions that this is built upon, right? And so why is it that this company that's building on it should just merits more extraction? So this is what Journey Collab is recognizing that with their trust, um, you know, and I think Compass represents a company that, you know, is less progressive in the way that it's thinking about those things. And again, a lot of this has to do also with the really critical point is of who you're raising capital from. And, you know, a lot of times, as soon as you raise capital from, you know, VCX, you have, you know, washed away a lot of your purpose. You're now bound to those incentives. And that's when you signed, you know, you signed the deal with the devil and a lot of really well-intentioned companies just refuse to take venture capital period. You know, I, I think I've, I came to this conversation having spoken with two folks who have found you know, incumbent upon themselves to bring forth this idea about psychedelics being incongruous with capitalism. One is Shayla Love, who writes for Vice Magazine, and the other is Brian Pace and Nishay Devineau, who've written papers about incongruities within this world. But I'm wondering if I have made the mistake of imbuing the psychedelics themselves, these substances, with some sort of magical qualities that they may not necessarily contain. Right. So my question to you would be, do you believe that psychedelics necessarily should or can or have the potential to be used for tools for social justice or instruments for political activism? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's a reason why psychedelics is a, a thread in my conversation under the consciousness banner. I mean, if we care about systemic change, if we care about justice, like what role does psychedelics play? Right. And so, again, let's go back to the 60s. What was the thinking? 
Like if everybody took LSD, then you could see, you know, our relationship to nature, the, you know, the, the flaws with our models of atomization and individualism that Western society is built upon. And that could lead to those systemic shifts, right? If you talk about justice, right, there is such horrific intergenerational trauma that sits in our bodies. And it's just, it's only in the last five years we started to talk with more sophistication about trauma and about the role that psychedelics can play in trauma. If we want to talk about reconciliation in societies that have had centuries of horrific injustices, I think psychedelics has a, a very important role to play. Right. And it, it sort of brings it back to where you and I met was at that 2019 Esalen Psychedelic Integration Conference. And it was the reason that psychedelics had or have a place at Esalen is because they likely do contain this transformative potential for some of the users. And perhaps that's why this conversation is of necessity. Yeah. In your notes, you referenced a conversation on liberatory technology, right? With your team from Mobius. Mm. In reference to my, mm. my thoughts around a question of do psychedelics have potential role within movements for equity and liberation? Yeah. I mean, this, so the liberatory technology conversation that I had on the podcast was looking at a technology. Can we instantiate a technology sector that centers our collective well-being? Again, and, you know, got into what does the vision for the tech sector look like? What do we mean by liberatory? Uh, and a lot of that was sort of liberating us from these internalized narratives about who we are. And again, a lot of the contemplative traditions parallel plant medicine in terms of the effect that they've had in our you know, ability to shift consciousness. You mentioned earlier Journey Collab setting aside a certain part of their profit for indigenous communities. Just in terms of giving back to indigenous communities, when it comes to companies who are creating for-profit enterprises, are there others that you see navigating these ethical considerations? Yeah. I mean, I think a really important point to make in this conversation is a lot of people go into using psychedelics, starting businesses in psychedelics, and they're very, you know, they're very excited and enthusiastic about it. And a lot of times they... They're just ignorant to like what it would mean to be ethical or what the, the missteps could be, right? They're largely socialized in the dominant paradigm of capitalism and in Western society. I think one, and, and so it's one really important organization to bring into this conversation is North Star. So North Star started with, they started with many conversations with the industry, looking at like what is necessary here. And the thing that came out of that conversation was the North Star Pledge. So it's an ethics pledge for individuals working in the psychedelic industry. A lot of the value is that it surfaces the things that people might not be thinking about as they step into the work in this space. In the same way that B, B lab certification, B corp certification helped executives understand like, oh, if I want to be a for benefit company, I need to be thinking about my supply chain and I need to think about pay and I need to think about governance structures. It's like, what is the scope of things to do as a ethically and responsible entrepreneur in this space? So some of the things that North Star surfaces to that end is principle number two is the study of the traditions. You say, I pledge to grow my knowledge of the history of psychedelics and their many traditions of use in good faith effort to appreciate both the potential of these substances and the conflict and complexity surrounding them, 
right? And then they also like understand the gravity is another one of the principles. Principle number seven, pay it forward. I pledge to support the flourishing of the psychedelic field and the communities in which I work to give back should my work lead to personal gain. So that's where North Star began. And what they found was I, at the high level, committed to those things. But then the question is, what does that actually look like? Like in the nuts and bolts of companies when I start those companies, right? So Journey Collab presents, okay, well, one way to do that is to create a trust and put an equity in the trust and have that sit, right? And, and, and it's valuable because so many companies do this, like we give back by giving a percentage of profits, right? And they're not giving a, a single digit percentage of profits, like Salesforce 111 model. They're giving a very significant chunk of equity, which could be very valuable over long periods of time. So that's a very big distinction between like some future unknown profits or even revenue. So one of the things that Northstar found was that there was just, again, a lot of ignorance in the space around like, what do really progressive corporate governance structures look like? And also the really essential role of cultural change and personal change alongside these sort of like almost like the hardware and the software of the organization. So they will soon launch the North Star Business Guide, which is something that I've been supporting and collaborating with them around, which is for entrepreneurs that basically outlines, here are all the ways that you might think about structuring your company. Here are all the practices that you might instantiate culturally. Because if you don't do the cultural piece, then you inadvertently replicate a lot of the structures that you're looking to offset. And so I think that's just a very important point to make, which is just there are often very well-intentioned entrepreneurs who just don't know what they don't know, right? But then when you get organizations trying to adopt really truly progressive business structures, so Purpose is one of the partners of Denizen, we've done a really, so for any entrepreneurs listening to this who are interested in this, two really important conversations we had that are like actionable, one's on co-ops and one's on steward ownership. Those are two different corporate forms that instantiate a much more aligned corporate structure, still for-profit businesses, or still businesses, I should say, many of which are still for-profit. Now, the problem is there is often then issues attracting capital for companies that want to adopt the most progressive models. And so I think Journey Collab is an important example where they took it, I think, as far as they could to then still be able to attract the capital that they have needed to attract. And they haven't, they haven't, you know, they haven't had to raise that much capital yet. You know, I think it's something like 15 million that they've raised so far. And, and they, there's a really great, you know, you should add in the show notes, there's a really great blog post that they put together that just talks about the trust and the process of creating it and, and where they're going in terms of governance. But one of the things that they state very clearly is like, we need aligned investors to actually be able to scale this up. And that is the most significant constraint that any of these more progressive corporate forms face. I mean, again, look at the open AI example. They wanted to be a nonprofit and they had to convert to this hybrid for nonprofit, the capped nonprofit, as they call it, entity, in order to attract the capital that was necessary to achieve their mission. Yeah, it's really interesting to dive into this idea of these progressive corporate structures. If you, Jenny, were to start a psychedelics company, what need would you be interested in meeting? You know, what, what kind of challenges still remain in the space? And then uh, as a second part of that question, how might you structure your your company with regards to capital, investment, et cetera? Well, you know, the space is nascent, right? I'm not necessarily close enough to say like, okay, well, here's where I think the big gap and the opportunity is, right? And I think the reality that I would face is the reality that all well-intentioned entrepreneurs in the space face, which is 
I would like to structure it like this because this is the gold standard. Okay, I am going to need to compromise that to raise capital to actually execute, right? MAPS is such a great example here. So MAPS was a 501c3 that funded all of their research. They set up a public benefit corp. The public benefit corp was wholly owned by the 501c3, right? So this is a this is a way to instantiate the steward ownership model that I was just referring to. It is the gold standard for corporate form aligned with purpose. They need to raise a lot of capital right now, you know, and they're facing the same challenge that OpenIA face, right? So there is a need to compromise that optimal corporate form in order to be successful in the current business environment, which I think also, you know, when we talk about systemic change, I think just helps us think about, well, how do we get from here to there? What are the marginal spaces that are required in order for culture to change and like institutions to shift such that these more progressive models can get adopted more broadly? And so I think stakeholder capitalism, as I articulated it, and what Journey Collab is doing, is a very important step along that path. But I think it's important to think deeply enough about it to realize that that still leaves in, intact these fundamental flaws of capitalism, that there are market-based structures that like really yield the ultimate outcomes for humanity that we care about. Give us a couple of thinkers within this space who you feel would bear some investigation. And how about actors within this space? Other companies besides the Journey, Collabs, and North Star that you feel are contributing to the space in, a, in an imaginative or useful way? Well, again, MAPS is for me, like an organization that I admire extraordinarily deeply. And Rick Doblin is a human that I consider a hero because again, he had this incredible multi-decade strategy that he followed steadfast and here we are. And MAPS has always pursued the gold standard from an institutional structure perspective. So, so MAPS is really an organization that I admire extraordinarily deeply. You know, I think that there is a, I mean, this is not in the psychedelic space, and I've alluded to it multiple times, but Purpose is a really important organization for people to have on their radar um, because they have, and they've had tons of interest from psychedelic entrepreneurs in uh, just consulting and understanding about governance structures and helping them set up progressive governance structures. And they've defined a, like a, a ladder between like the, the least and most binding of, you know, kind of a menu of options that entrepreneurs could choose to, you know, instantiate the corporate incentives that they would want to. Um, And so that's just a really important resource and entity for people to have um, on their radar. I think that what's needed is, you know, the most shift is needed on the investment side. You know, a lot of the challenge with investment is that it's like a coordination failure. You know, you might get one investor, like when you raise capital, you raise rounds of capital from many different investors. So you might find some investors that are, you know, into these more progressive forms, but then will subsequent investors be into those more progressive forms? And so there is a need for more coordination addressing the market failures that are happening on the, you know, in in economics is what we call a coordination failure. It's like everybody needs to do it in tandem in order for that like different equilibrium to happen. And so it's, it's on the finance side that the most significant constraint exists and you get, you know, high net worth individuals or family foundations that are smaller, that are willing to put capital, but that like those aren't significant amounts of capital. 
And then you find that it's institutional investors that see the market opportunity that are willing to put in large amount of capital, but they then completely wash out the more progressive, uh, you know, incentive structures. So like, really addressing the gap on the capital side, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly answering your question, but like, who should we be looking at in this? But, but I think like on the capital side, this just moving beyond the sort of short list of progressive high net worth individuals and small family foundations that we see getting this started, kickstarting this work in the space and, 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 you know, having more of an appetite for progressive forms of capital at larger numbers. Jenny, here's another off script question for you. Uh, you can choose to answer it. And if you don't, then I'll simply edit this little piece out. I was wondering if you might be open to sharing how psychedelics has proved useful or instructive for you within just the context of your life. So interestingly, I have not, you know, psychedelics has been a part of my life since I was a teenager, like experimenting with like different states of consciousness. I have done less clinical and ceremonial context when when this became more popular in my social circles in the last decade i was in the throes of raising very young children and breastfeeding and it just never felt right to step away from them to do that and so i haven't i think those sort of those more provocative transformational psychedelic experiences that so many of my my friends have had i haven't found the right opportunity to engage in yet um, but I have had lots of people say like, oh, you have to go do ayahuasca because then you're going to figure out how to like save the world or something like that. Um, you know, so my, my experience has been more, um, you know, recreational. I have done a handful of, of San Pedro ceremonies, you know, and I, I, you know, I think in parallel, I have like a very long practice, longstanding practice of almost 20 years now of, of meditation and yoga, um, you know, that has sort of informed my being. And I think that, you know, all of us, we have this systems conversation at Denizen, but all of us, and this is our thesis around change, like our subtitle is change from within, right? Answering this question, like, what's your theory of change for how, how systemic change actually happens, right? And this gets into the, the culture piece that we talked about with the North Star Business Guide. It's like, we have social, we have internalized, we have been socialized into this institutional context, right? And, and we're just, totally ignorant to the ways in which we are perpetuating those things in our behaviors because it's like it's just the way that we have always behaved so i think psychedelics and meditation has like been a tool for me to sit with and confront and rewrite some of those narratives about like who i am like or where my self-worth comes from uh you know because i went through a whole period in my 30s of just sort of resisting the lean in Sheryl Sandberg narrative and staying home with my kids. And, you know, and I think that like my use of psychedelics, have, it's kind of just informed, you know, decisions that were at odds with like what society told me that I should be. And I think that that's just a very important role for psychedelics to play is like reconnecting to the wisdom within, you know, and this is such an important thread of the denizen conversation. It's like, with the age of enlightenment, there was so much emphasis on on thinking and rationality. We got so in our heads and so disconnected from our bodies. And like our bodies are where we did this incredible conversation a few weeks ago of kind of embodied leadership. Someone in the organization has like very progressive practices in the way that they lead their company, which is about being embodied, like time in silence, checking in with your body. What is your body telling you about this proposal? And so you know, for me personally, I think broadly psychedelics is like a very powerful tool to reconnect to ourselves, 
and like shed these stories that it, it, many times it's just so extraordinarily hard to parse these stories from our reality. And so I think psychedelics is for me, you know, and I get excited about psychedelics as a potential to facilitate that really crucial unlearning and internal and personal work that is required for systemic change. Before we go, would you let us know how listeners can find out more about Denison, find the podcast, learn more about the organization? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is becomingdenison.com and D-E-N-I-Z-E-N. Lots of people don't actually know the word Denison. So just to give a quick context on that, Denison is an inhabitant of a place. And so the provocation is like, what does it mean to be a Denison of yourself and your family and your community and the planet in a way that is aligned and sustainable. And so becoming is in our URL because it connotes this sort of commitment to the work and the practice. And the fact that like, you don't just snap your fingers and all of a sudden you're, you know, enlightened and living in that new system, you're socialized in the current system. And it's this, this constant practice and effort of of becoming and shedding and practicing and learning what that new way is. So it's becomingdenizen.com. There you can sign up for our newsletter. I send a newsletter out every week, which is just, here's the latest episode and then other announcements from the community. So Denizen partners with about a dozen organizations that do work in the space. So when there are course offerings or events that they have, we, we let our newsletter subscribers know. I also curate learning opportunities for our community. One of the things that we did recently was a nonviolent communication course. Like to my point earlier about, you know, the, the things that we do that we don't even realize are aligned with that way. Like in systems conversations, we talk about these big paradigm shifts from, you know, from dominance to partnership or from scarcity to abundance. And they sound so lofty and obtuse. And this is actually a something, and there's a conversation with Danny who did the course on nonviolent communication on the podcast how those paradigms show up and how we relate and think about in our actual interactions with one another and how nonviolent communication is a way for us to effectively upregulate, you know, the, the ways that human, we want humans to be, which is empathetic and loving and caring. And so I, I curate learning opportunities for the community that I talk about in the newsletter, or you can just go to wherever you follow your podcasts on Apple or Spotify and just look up the Denizen podcast. We have a very bright and colorful logo so you can't miss it. Jenny Stefanati, thank you for educating me and the greater populace today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a great conversation. I know we get a little bit wonky, but it's really, that's where the rubber hits the road. Like that's where you actually instantiate a different economy. That's where you actually address these misaligned incentives. So it's like, oh my God, we're really fucking talking about government structures <laughs> and like corporate forms. But like, that's, that's where, that's where the magic is. It's where I get excited. So thanks for going there with me. Oh yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. This episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.